This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer, Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 30, recorded on September 4th, 2013. I'm your host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here along with my co-host, Robin Dennis. Welcome, Robin. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Tim. And we have two guests with us today. One is our executive producer, Donna Litwinski. Welcome, Donna. Thank you, Tim. It's Donna. great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. Donna joins us on Skype. And in the recording studio with us is another guest, uh, Liz Varga. Welcome, Liz. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. So Liz is a certified genetics counselor. I was looking at your signature block that um, your name has CGC after it, so I thought that's very appropriate for someone involved in genetics. But you're here today because there's a series of papers we're going to talk about that have to do with inherited cancer and and risk of cancer, particularly in family members of patients who have been diagnosed with pediatric cancers. So just for the listening audience, if they want to reference these or uh, seek these out for themselves, really there's three papers that came out all within the same time frame of each other. Two of them were the in the International Journal of Cancer uh, this year, 2013. Uh, one was from a group in Utah. Uh, the authors are Karen Curtin, Ken Smith, Allison Frazier, Richard Pimental, Wendy Coleman, and Josh Schiffman, and was entitled Familial Risk of Childhood Cancer and Tumors in the Lee-Fraumini Spectrum in the Utah Population Database, Implications for Genetic Evaluation in Pediatric Practice. And another one also used the Utah Genealogy Database set, but this was um, a group mainly out of Australia by uh, Rachel Neal, Charles Stiller, Catherine Bunch, Elizabeth Milne, Geraldine Minot and Michael Murphy called Familial Aggregation of Childhood and Adult Cancer in the Utah Genealogy, also in the International Journal of Cancer. And then finally, there was a meeting report uh, that summarized some of the events that happened at the 2012 Annual Meeting of the American Society of Pediatric Hematology Oncology. Uh, The meeting report was called Update on Pediatric Cancer Predisposition Syndromes, and that appeared in Pediatric Blood and Cancer uh, in the... um, recent issue. Uh, That was by Josh Schiffman, Jim Geller, one of our former co-hosts for TWIPO, who hasn't been able to join us over the last year, but maybe someday will rejoin us. Uh, Also by Aaron Mund, Anthony Means, Lindsay Means, and Vaughn Means. I wanted to just start by asking Liz and Donna about a little bit about their past, just to introduce this topic to us. So maybe, Liz, let's start with you. How did you what, what is your history, your training, why did you get interested in this field, and what's your current role since you actually are a, a genetics counselor embedded in our hematology oncology program? Okay. Well, um, I really got passionate about the area of biology and genetics um, through my mom. She's a science teacher, 
and I grew up learning a lot about science and liking teaching about science. Um, and then when I entered kind of high school level, I started learning about Punnett squares and genetics and was just always fascinated by it. And then had the opportunity to just do an internship where I got to observe genetic counselors in clinical practice. And what genetic counselors do is that they take a family history, they assess risk for disease and how diseases may be transmitted. They talk about testing options for families and then hopefully prevention um, and testing to prevent disease in future generations. So I think that's a great opportunity to kind of teach, also learn a lot. My Jobs very different every single day, and I feel like it can really benefit different patients and families. What What did you have to go through to get certified as a genetics counselor? Well, I did my undergraduate at DePaul University in biology, and then did a two year um, master's program at the University of Cincinnati in genetic counseling. There's about thirty to forty programs in the United States that offer the master's degree in genetic counseling. And then after you become, um, you pass, go through the master's program, you become a certified genetic counselor by taking a board exam. And how many years have you worked here at Nationwide Children's? I've been here for seven, um, and I've done genetic counseling for about 11. And right now, I work primarily in the um, hematology setting and also oncology um, pediatrics. Great. And Donna, you mentioned earlier when we were discussing that, you know, this is a topic that um, may hit a nerve in some ways, but because you have a f- fair amount of cancer in your family. Can you tell us about that? Thank you, Tim. I would like to talk about our family history and how I got involved in pediatric oncology to begin with. Uh, my son was diagnosed at the age of six in 1991 with uh, neuroblastoma. He had a uh, classic uh, risk. And um, our family history was a little uh, concerning when that happened, my husband's sister was diagnosed with melanoma at 16, and she died four months after her diagnosis. And then he had another sister who was diagnosed in her 50s with thyroid cancer. His mother was diagnosed with breast cancer in her 40s, and then subsequently had um, liver cancer in her 50s, and she uh, died from that. And then I have a brother who was diagnosed with testicular cancer in his 40s. So um, as far as cancer in the family, that was quite a few for our siblings and then with my husband's uh, parents. Um, But, you know, obviously you don't expect that with your own children. I have three more children and so far so good. We we have, they're all healthy and and doing well. That's great. Uh, How old are they? Um, The oldest is 24, uh, the next one's 18, and then the youngest is 13. So are they or you on pins and needles about this? Well, you know, it's it's something that's always on my mind, but we, you know, attend to every symptom and, you know, every, you know, bump and bruise like a lot of uh, cancer parents do. But with the knowledge that without uh, doing, and I'm sure we'll get into this, uh, a little bit more intensive screening, it would be very hard to find something that there is asymptomatic. So, you know, I do recognize that that fact, but we're, we're certainly attentive to anything that's worrisome. And when your son was diagnosed, what did they tell you, they being, you know, whoever, whatever the healthcare system providers you encountered, sort of tell you about the risk for your other children or... Well, it was interesting. I don't know at what point um, the, you know, the leave from Eni syndrome became uh, something that people were talking about. I don't, I don't know at what point that, um, 
you know, any uh, standard testing was being done, but this was in 1991. And he said, we could be tested and our children could be tested. Obviously our son was the first one to test and uh, we declined the testing. And um, this was at uh, Dana-Farber. And so, you know, all these years have gone by questions of, you know, is ignorance bliss or not? I, you know, I've always worried that if anyone would tested positive, then we would live, you know, in sheer terror every day. But on the other hand, not knowing makes you wonder too, you know, how much uh, surveillance you should be doing. So I was at Dana-Farber around then, actually, and um, Fred Lee was on faculty there. So it's interesting that you were there and, and they were offering you testing for for Lee Fraumenism syndrome named after him. But since you brought yes. that up, why don't we actually summarize just some of these papers that have come out? Um, and uh, Robin, could you just talk about the one that actually talks about Lee Fraumenism syndrome and the, looking at the Utah population database? Sure. Just in general, I was just going to talk about the overarching theme and the goals of the study and how they use the d- database to get to their um, conclusions. So the the theme of the study was to was it was performed to try to get a better understanding of um, cancer risk of family members who were related to children who were diagnosed with pediatric cancers, and the goal really was to identify cancer risk in relatives of children with cancer to determine if there's evidence of familial aggreg- aggregation within families and also to see if there was a method to inform risk assessment and to see if we can better figure out how to counsel families. So just let me stop you right there. So um, traditionally what we have told patients, unless there's an obvious uh, pattern within the family, there's really no, no risk. increased risk, right, of siblings having cancers now, right, Liz? Is that what you've <laughs> typically told told our newly diagnosed patients? For me, it's always dependent on the type of cancer um, and also, of course, the family history. But, like, obviously for certain ones, retinoblastoma, there is a risk. But, yeah, yeah. in sure. general, things like neuroblastoma and leukemia or things like that, I've said low risk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Um, and actually, it's something I wanted to point out in the paper a little bit later as well. They also wanted to see if they can concur with other previous studies who have also noted somewhat of a higher risk percentage of childhood cancer patients in their families. The population of interest for this um, group was to look at the cancer risk in three main groups of people. The first group was first-degree relatives of children diagnosed with cancer, so that meant those patients, siblings, and their parents. The second group was a second-degree relative, so the children, cancer patients, grandparents, aunts and uncles, niece and nephews. And the third group of people were third-degree relatives, which they um, die, they um, were first cousins mainly. And so they looked at a very large population of patients, um, over 4,000 subjects, that of children who were diagnosed with cancer with a criteria that they had to be diagnosed at less than 19 years of age. Um, and this Utah population database is a shared source that is provided by the University of Utah um, and has lots of family histories of nearly 7 million individuals. And the the good thing about the database was that all the records are linked to comprehensive, routinely updated cancer information for the families. It also has very comprehensive pedigree information um, so that you can go back and look at the genealogy of the families of the children who are diagnosed with cancer. The information they obtained from the database went from 1966 to 2009, which is a pretty long time. Um, and uh, they also, um, and then using that information, looking at those children, they 
matched each child with um, five case controls. So essentially, this was a case control study. So to in order to assess the risk, they tried to determine what the odds ratio was. So that's basically saying the odds of the of a relative um, with a child who was diagnosed with cancer, what is the odds that one of those first, second, or third degree um, relatives will also get a cancer later on in their lives. What they came up with um, was they started out looking at 6,399 patients they identified that had first primary cancers, assumed that that cancer prevalence did represent the general population. Out of the 6,000 patients, there were 4,000 that were members of the Utah database that had at least two-generation pedigree data available. So they included those 4,000 in the study so they would be able to go back and look at their family histories. Out of the 4,000 cases, quite interesting. So 95 families had two cases of um, pediatric cancers. Eight families had three cases. Two families had four cases. Um, so um, there were several families who had multiple cases of children that were diagnosed with cancer. Um, they didn't really go into those families um, in detail, which also would have been a little interesting, but maybe they're saving it for another paper. If you look at, there are some tables that they have in the um, article that kind of describe the data for you. In generally, what they saw was that, well, in general, just kind of looking at the, the background and demographics, the majority of patients were in Utah. Um, male and female were pretty matched equally. Um, there were a, a larger amount of patients that were between the age of 5 and 18, uh, less that were 0 to 4. Um, majority of patients were alive at follow-up. The most common cancers that were diagnosed were leukemias, uh, myeloproliferative diseases of the marrow. Second most common were um, brain tumors. Um, and third most common were lymphomas. That pretty much follows the Which follows typical what we incidence. See. Yeah. Exactly. If you look at the main results for the first degree relatives, they reported an odds ratio or basically said that children who are diagnosed with cancer between the age of 0 and 18, their first degree relatives have a two times increased risk of developing cancer at some point in their lifetime. And if you break that data down into the younger population, so if you if the child was diagnosed between ages 0 to 4, that risk actually increased to 3.6%. Um, and they 3.6 fold. Right? Fold, yeah. sorry, 3.6 times higher risk. The, the thought behind that actually was to was actually maybe in support of the, the in the discussion. They they talk about the fact of the increased risk um, in the smaller age group actually um, suggesting more of a genetic basis for things and less and as an, less of an environmental thing. And they also saw the same breakdown in the second degree relatives um, in terms of the age groups. The other thing that they looked at was different types of cancers and tried to break it down. Although I feel like it gets a little bit difficult to do in some of the rare, more rare tumors because the numbers of the patients are kind of small. So although in, say, for instance, like um, Liz was mentioning, the retinoblastomas we already know have increased familiar risk of cancer, and their um, relative risk was five, almost six times more than the general population. Um, but then for um, some other smaller ones, like I don't know if we would be able to make a determination on some of the other ones, like the germ cell tumors and the renal tumors and stuff, because those groups only had two to six patients in them. So um, so I think a little bit more needs to be studied about those. Um, for the leukemias um, and the bone tumors, it's kind of interesting, because in the conclusion of the article, they actually talk a lot about the fact that these 
patients in general should be counseled potentially that there is an increased risk, especially if they're diagnosed between the age of zero to four. And as a, a leukemia person, the majority of our kids are diagnosed between the ages of two and five. Um, and in general, we tell our leukemia patients that they do not have an increased risk, um, the siblings at least, of having the cancer. And that's actually the majority of the population of the patients that were studied. So I think that was kind of an interesting finding. You know, this other paper that also used similar data sets, so mm-hmm. I found similar findings, a little bit different numbers and a little bit different comparisons. But again, uh, the chances if you were uh, had childhood cancer that of a first-degree relative, it was at 1.3-fold the incidence of the general population. And if it was a young patient, other five, then it was went up to 1.48-fold. Mm-hmm. And interesting, they found it was mainly restricted to the moms and siblings. Uh, did they, in the, in the paper you were talking mm-hmm. about, did they have that same kind of observation? No. Yeah. No, they did not. And then lastly, the lymphomas, which we do see a large majority of, uh, there actually was no increased risk. Um, from the, There was no real association with the lymphomas, so they, that must be maybe another genetic. I'm not exactly sure what the lymphomas, the cause would be for those. In terms of the leaf for mini tumors. Um, internally, they looked at the cohort. In general, it just seems like the overall, the increased risk appears to be independent of the leaf for remaining tumors. Um, and they did identify um, one family who did have cancers in pretty much every generation who met pretty much all the criteria for leaf romini syndrome. Liz, can you remind us what those criteria are? What What is leaf romini syndrome I know, for, the, for the audience? Yeah, so there's actually a few different definitions, so it depends on which criteria you are going by. Um, but in this, they actually do cover the Champre um, criteria. And so basically, that one is looking um, a lot at age of onset with cancer. So you need an individual diagnosed with a Leifraumini-related cancer, which tends to be leukemias, sarcomas, osteosarcomas, brain tumors, um, premenopausal breast cancers, adrenocortical carcinoma, and lung cancer. Um, so any of those basically diagnosed in one person before 46. And then also in the family, you need at least one first-degree relative with a Lee-Fraumini um, syndrome-related cancer before age 56. And then if you have an individual with multiple tumors that are within the same lineage, um, usually considered a first or a second-degree relative, under the age of 46. And, and the classic findings are d- due to a P53 mutation that runs through families. There have been others uh, like check 2 mutations. I'm mm-hmm. not and I, and I know there's families that fit that pattern that don't have either of those. I'm not right. sure if there's other genes yet mm-hmm. that have been identified, but but it's a functional definition not necessarily collaborated by by a gene mutation. Exactly. In the check 2 you tend to see more with like the breast cancer and sometimes colorectal, um, but most often it's P53. But still, we generally say about 80% of people who meet this Champre criteria will have a molecular diagnosis. So now the other paper that was the meeting report, they actually had a family mm-hmm. uh, with, with the Lee-Fromini syndrome, and they presented sort of their experience. And um, I was at that meeting, uh, the room was full of hundreds of people, and you could sort of hear a pin drop as they told their story, and, and the young woman in her, in her early 20s having made the decision for double mastectomy. So, you know, obviously these these have very profound implications, but it strikes me that if you're saying 
uh, uh, siblings or parents or first-degree relatives have a 1.5-fold incidence above something that's already very rare, is that really important or enough to make any kind of decisions or screening on? Does that You're already talking, you know, one in 600 people. So does two in 600 really change how we think about any of this? I think it's difficult because even with Lee Fraumini, when it's a confirmed diagnosis in a family, there's not great screening guidelines. So there's some research underway looking at things like whole body MRI, but generally that's not a widely accepted, you know, tool at this point. So um, pretty much you still advise just symptomatic management and, and taking any signs or symptoms very seriously and annual checkups and things like that. Obviously, with Lee Fraumini, there is a high risk of certain cancers. And like for breast cancer, it would be reasonable con- to consider mastectomy and things like that. But um, beyond the setting of that very high risk, I think it's very difficult to take this data and extrapolate it to what you would do in terms of management. And Donna, your family doesn't seem, from my assessment of it, I don't think qualify based on these criteria. You could correct me if I'm wrong. As, as actually leave from any yet, it's yet your history is you know a little worrisome or certainly raises eyebrows. I agree with you. I mean, it's it's encouraging to me to see that we fit outside those guidelines, but it does make you wonder if there are other. Um, you know, you just don't know because as time goes on, there's more mutations that are found like um, within neuroblastoma realm, the, you know, the ALK mutation and the FOX2B, um, there, it looks like that there may be some um, familial connection there. And so as time goes on, we just don't know what what's next. I mean, now we're 20 some years out from his original diagnosis and the first time we were offered genetic counseling. And even if we had agreed to do it, it makes me wonder, well, you know, what's available, what information is available today um, that may shed more light on it, but it's still, you know, that doesn't change the question of, of what do you do with that information? I, I was happy to hear you say that there aren't strict screening guidelines. So that means you're still, um, it's up to the doctor and, you know, the, the intuition probably of the families to decide how aggressively, uh, to do surveillance. And, you know, if, if there's enough cancer in the family that makes you nervous about it anyway, then you're doing those things. Um, you're, you're certainly not ignoring symptoms. That's for sure. So for you personally, who scours the literature just for, you know, uh, advances in in the whole field and uh, trying to share what you learn with others and and increase your own understanding and and help you know do what you can to help fund research projects etc. When you come across information like these papers, does it send you into a Twitter? Yeah, <laughs> you could say that. And certainly because you know the rest of the research that I read about is is looking forward in terms of you know what hope is there for tomorrow, you know, for the kids that were in the situation uh, that my son was in not too long ago. Now, these type of papers concern the rest of us. And that's why it's it's much harder for me emotionally to, you know, to balance the worry and the information. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, we're, look- always, we're always looking for something hopeful. And if, if I could read something that says, you know, we're, we're not at risk, that, that makes my day. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. Liz, I was just wondering, in terms of 
generalizing this information when you use this database of the Utah population, which we all know is quite homogeneous. Right. How 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 much do you think it relates to the rest of us? <laughs> yeah. So I that was kind of my first question. They did have some background in the paper trying to explain that they felt that it was similar to a Northern European population and pretty representative, maybe a mostly European background. But they also compared in the paper different registry studies like from Sweden and um, other Nordic countries, the UK. And um, there's different data and findings based on population. I think that is really important to keep in mind. I think it is a homogenous, unique population. So, yeah, that definitely was a question in my mind. I guess it is important to point out that both of these papers um, cited a lot of other publications and studies that have been done that – had conflicting results, some that said there's really no increased incidence in siblings or family members, and some that right. have said there is. And I guess these authors felt like they had unique attributes about their study that made it perhaps more believable, but, you know, again, it may apply only to the that population. Right. So there's some caveats here. But let me ask you, Liz, so does this change your practice in any way in terms of patient histories, and do you have any recommendations for families that are coming to our clinic? Uh, do they need to bring sort of volumes of uh, genealogy <laughs> with them? Well, of course, that's my ideal um, patient. But <laughs> I guess my take home is what it has always been, which is that each kind of family is unique and each situation is unique. I have a hard time generalizing. So before I would apply just a general twofold increase risk in my counseling. First, I need to see replication. And also, you know, for me, I like to specifically advise that family based on their own family history, um, what environmental risk factors are there, and then what, you know, genetic factors I do see when I do take the family history. And as Donna brought up, I think that um, our practice is going to change significantly in the next few years as like whole genome sequencing becomes more um, widely available. And we do have a molecular basis in a lot more cases because, as Donna mentioned, there's been significant changes um, even with neuroblastoma and certain tumors in the way we educate people about familial risk. And, of course, the ethics of that are probably going to lag behind our ability to find mutations. And even if you find it, what does that mean they're actually going to get it or what's the chance that something's going to happen and when? And so there's going to raise all kinds of other questions exactly. for future study. So, Robin, is this now that... These studies are out and saying maybe there is a little bit of an increased risk. Do you going to tell your patients anything differently? No, I think that the, what I tend, I'll keep doing what I tend to do. I mean, I think it, it, it at least prompted good things to remind people to do. So, you know, make sure you get a very complete family history. So reminder for that, make sure that you're getting all generations up to at least the third generation so that you don't miss something. But I think in terms of risk, I still, I would probably just say, Yes, there are. The, there's just data to support that, but there's also data that conflicts. And I think that, you know, I think that it probably still needs to be studied even more, especially with kind of putting that molecular, newer molecular information into the family risk. And maybe eventually we'll have some sort of, you know, formula for determining that risk that includes, you know, genetic mutation analysis data from the patient and the family history, then to make a little bit of better assessment. But I think just based on and this data, I don't know if I would, at least in the leukemia population that I deal with, um, say that it's for sure an increased risk. Donna, do you have any other comments or questions? I have a, a great question, I hope, um, because you just made me realize, especially for those who us 
of us who are treated by, you know, family physicians in a typical, you know, a non-oncology setting. When I take my 13-year-old in for something, you know, maybe he looks pale and I want a blood test done because I, I just think he's bruising or whatever. What is your understanding of the typical, you know, family practice? Um, their understanding of these situations, when I bring in a family history, now my son's died, so we're not dealing with the oncology world, but I, if I'm in a, a you know, family practice setting, and I bring a family history and say, you know, I am concerned because of these various uh, close family members who have had cancer. What is your 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 take on on the general practitioner's understanding of this? How are they going to react? What's their you know? Are there guidelines or their uh, you know? Or is it up to the individual just to decide if they're going to brush you off because you're really nervous? (laughs) Well, I think, you know, we often cite parental anxiety as a reason to run tests, as a valid reason to run tests, (laughs) legitimate reason. So I think, you know, hopefully your practitioner would be sensitive to that and say, okay, you know, this is maybe, maybe as long as the test is just a a blood count or something to reassure everyone in the room. I think the question really will then come, you know, is it valid enough of an argument to go do a whole genome sequencing? And maybe someday that'll be as cheap as a blood test and and it won't be a big deal. But uh, I think that's probably the question is where do you draw the line in terms of running tests? You know, the more tests you do, the more things you find that you chase down that maybe are false leads. So that's the risk. Um, Even scans, too. You know, there's lots of examples that you see a spot on something and you end up getting a biopsy. It turns out to be nothing, and you went through a lot of anxiety for no reason. So that's the risk of, of this yes. whole field, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a that's a great point. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, I took my daughter in because it felt like she had a lump on her lower rib, and you know, after a few months of watching that and increasing anxiety, I finally took her in, and the physician's assistant said, eh, "You know." bring her back in a few months if it's still there. Would did not want to do even so much as a blood test. Um, didn't want to do a scan or anything. And so I remember thinking they have no idea how much, you know, anxiety went through even the decision to bring her in. And yet it was still, yeah, it's probably nothing, mm-hmm. you know, type of response. You know, I'm convinced now it was nothing because that was a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. But it still would have it would have been nice to see if, you know, something yeah, those are those are tif- difficult situations. You have to, I think, um, assess individually, case by case, and sort of exactly. feel out how what the what the mm-hmm. best course of action is. It's everything's a risk benefit ratio. You know, what's Absolutely. the risk of missing something versus the risk of finding a false lead, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. yeah. right. I just wanted to comment that I think that that is one advantage of genetic testing that I've seen in families is that it can also be reassuring. So everyone thinks about like the negative implications and the scary implications of gene testing, but there's nothing more rewarding in my job than to know a genetic cause for a cancer in a family, what is making them predisposed, and then be able to test a relative um, and find that they are negative. So those are the families that stick with me where you can actually reassure parents to say, you know, yeah, unfortunately your child did develop a cancer because of this genetic predisposition, but your other child did not inherit it. Fantastic. That makes sense. Yeah, maybe that's a great note to end on. We're over a half an hour into this. So um, I guess uh, we're going to encourage our listeners to email us for any questions or, or comments on this topic. And um, certainly if any of the co-authors of these papers or others that are knowledgeable about this field 
want to correct us on anything, we encourage that as well. But Robin, thanks for being here. No problem. Thank you. Liz, thanks for joining us today. It was really great. Thank you for having me. And Don, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Tim. And thank uh, Victor Aguilar and Jeff Thurston, our technical and sound engineers who've been helping us out in the studio today. Uh, if you do have a question, please send us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Twippo Podcast. And you can, hopefully, if it gets fixed, uh, you can sign up for automatic notification with using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. As always, I thank the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donna herself, who is our executive producer, and Jenny Song, director of communications, as well as Scott Kennedy and John Lennon, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to this week's Pediatric Oncology.